It's the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 52, and I would like to discuss the U.S. fast food chain Chick-fil-A, which I would guess is the single most polarizing restaurant chain in the United States. Where I live, in the southeastern region of the states, Chick-fil-A is almost a way of life. Nearly everybody in the South eats at Chick-fil-A. Nearly everybody has worked there at some point in their lives, and you can tell because they say, my pleasure, instead of, you're welcome. Yet, if I were to have a Chick-fil-A cup in the blurry background of one of my YouTube videos, it would probably provoke a minor internet controversy, or at least a really long thread on the Adam Ragusea subreddit where someone, probably from a different region of the United States, would say, I'm a big supporter of Adam's, but man, I just, I'm just really disappointed he eats at Chick-fil-A. Meanwhile, most people outside the United States would just be totally confused by all of this because... Chick-fil-A is unique among major national U.S. fast food brands in that it has almost zero locations beyond the U.S. I mean, Chick-fil-A is coming for you, Europe and Asia. By the end of this decade, if all goes according to plan, you too will have to wrestle with the particular moral conundrum posed by Chick-fil-A arguably the best-run, best-managed fast food chain of its size ever. A marvel of modern logistics with a chicken recipe that is undeniable. Anyone who says that chicken isn't good is lying to you or lying to themselves. That's Chick-fil-A. Europe and Asia are getting Chick-fil-A soon, and that means you too will have to wrestle with... An admiration of Chick-fil-A on one hand, and the particular moral problems of Chick-fil-A on the other. Regardless of how you feel about Chick-fil-A's longtime, ample, though mostly past support for organizations that advance the Southern Baptist sociopolitical agenda of Chick-fil-A's founding family, regardless of how you feel about that, other people feel very intensely about that, and if you consume Chick-fil-A on social media, you're probably going to hear about it. I'm going to talk through the whole controversy this hour and put it in the broader history and story of Chick-fil-A and the South, and I'll talk about why I think Chick-fil-A is a pretty remarkable company, hashtag not an ad, just a fan. Am I actually a fan of Chick-fil-A? Maybe not. I mean, I admire Chick-fil-A for sure. I admire its purity. And lest anyone think that I've turned bootlicker, please make sure that you know what movie dialogue I was just referencing before you assume what I meant when I said that I admire Chick-fil-A's purity. Chick-fil-A is as perfectly optimized of a suburban money extraction machine as you will ever see in this world. Everything they do... They tend to do very, very well. As an unlikely small business person, I admire Chick-fil-A as an uncommonly successful business. A couple years ago, when we were waiting in line to get our first COVID vaccines, 
Lauren said, man, the state should give a contract for managing this vaccine rollout to Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A could organize these lines in this parking lot so much more efficiently. And Lauren was kind of joking when she said that, but I was kind of sincere when I agreed with her. Chick-fil-A does seem to have a secret management sauce that is as effective and aggressively sweet as their actual sauces. And I'm looking at you, Polynesian sauce. You're just straight sugar colored with beet juice and tomato paste. <laughs> at the same time, I do find some of the vocally professed values of Chick-fil-A's founding family to be anathema to some of my own values. I think people were right to get really mad at Chick-fil-A about a decade ago when this all blew up really big. And I think Chick-fil-A's corporate leadership was right to withdraw their support for certain organizations in response to public pressure. Personally, I am happy that all happened. I am, nonetheless, a little annoyed by all the people on the internet who continued to conspicuously boycott Chick-fil-A, even though doing so requires no change of behavior on their part because they live in a region of the U.S. that doesn't really have Chick-fil-A. I mean, Chick-fil-A is in almost every state now, but they are overwhelmingly concentrated in the Southeast. Boycotting Chick-fil-A in Vermont, for example, doesn't involve actually doing anything different because there's no Chick-fil-A up there in Vermont. But someone in Vermont will proudly inform you anyway that they would never eat at a Chick-fil-A, and that's a little annoying to me, as it is annoying to lots of people who live in the southern U.S., where Chick-fil-A is almost a way of life, a way of life that cuts across ethnic and socioeconomic boundaries. If you know how Southerners feel about the Waffle House— I think the way they feel about Chick-fil-A is similar, or the intensity of their feeling is similar. To people in the South, boycotting Chick-fil-A would be almost like boycotting the South itself, be a kind of self-rejection. And while I am fully supportive of boycotts in general, the power of your purse is probably the most influential vote you have. While I am down with boycotts, I don't boycott Chick-fil-A. And I will walk you through my personal moral logic on that one, which doesn't quite boil down to there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, but I will admit my argument does verge into that territory. Most of us, at least, could probably stand to develop a more coherent or consistent moral reasoning for why we give our money to some companies but not to others. To begin at the beginning, Chick-fil-A traces its origins to some suburbs just south of Atlanta, Georgia, where a gentleman named S. Truett Cathy operated restaurants going back to 1946. Kathy was a World War II veteran in his mid-20s when he came home and opened a restaurant in Hapeville, Georgia, called Dwarf Grill, since renamed Dwarf House. Anyone who has driven south past Atlanta has either seen the Dwarf House or seen signs for the Dwarf House. 
And that's a lot of people who have made that drive because Atlanta is the highway bottleneck through which most of the rest of the United States accesses Florida and all of the tourist attractions therein. Millions of people have driven by the original dwarf house just south of Atlanta, or perhaps some of the other dwarf houses down there. It's like a little local chain within the national Chick-fil-A chain that was itself spawned from the dwarf houses, which are conspicuous on the roadside because of their stylized, miscellaneously European medieval fairy tale architecture, which I guess maybe is meant to evoke trolls even though trolls are not dwarves, trolls are mythological monsters, while dwarves are actual human beings who are born with achondroplasia or some other form of dwarfism. According to Chick-fil-A corporate lore, S. Truett Cathy called it the dwarf grill because the original building was so small and cramped. Not exactly starting his business out on a politically correct foot there, was he? Dwarves are actual humans, and it maybe doesn't make people with dwarfism feel so great when other people refer to small things derisively as dwarf. I'm generally supportive of the concept of political correctness. It's just another term for good manners, being polite, etc. That's all political correctness is, and I'm generally down with it. It's kind of rude to deprecatingly name your tiny restaurant the Dwarf Grill, but in any case, that is where Truett Cathy invented the chicken sandwich. Chick-fil-A's longtime slogan is, we didn't invent the chicken, just the chicken sandwich. And pedants have long contested that slogan on factual grounds. S. Truett Cathy absolutely was not the first human to serve a piece of fried chicken between two pieces of bread. But I think that slogan is perfectly fine as hyperbole or brand bravado. Saying you invented the chicken sandwich is like saying, you know, my chicken sandwiches are so good that when you look up chicken sandwich in the encyclopedia, there's a picture of my chicken sandwiches. The brag doesn't have to be literally true to make a legitimate point. Truett Cathy did legitimately advance the form of the chicken sandwich. What he pioneered was cooking the chicken breast for the sandwich not inside like a normal deep fryer, but inside a pressure fryer. He did this with the aim of cooking the chicken breast faster. Normally, a whole breast would take two or three times as long to cook than a burger. Kathy tried the pressure fryer with the intention of cooking the chicken faster. And indeed, it did cook the chicken faster, but it also changed the texture of the chicken. Truett Cathy did not pioneer the pressure fryer itself. That was Colonel Harlan David Sanders, who founded Kentucky Fried Chicken, a chain based on his own patented pressure frying device. But Colonel Sanders founded KFC right around the same time when Truett Cathy is also said to have developed his sandwich, the early 1960s. A pressure fryer is a deep fryer with a gasket around the rim and a big, heavy locking lid that forms an airtight seal. You drop the food in the hot oil, 
you bring down the lid and then you turn a big crank or you use some other mechanism to physically lock the lid down and hold that pressure tight seal. It's bad enough when a normal pressure cooker explodes, but imagine a pressure cooker filled with 400 degree oil instead of 200 degree stew. Fahrenheit degrees, of course. Oil gets way hotter than water. Most foods you do in a normal pressure cooker are water-based, so they only get a little dangerously hot in a pressure cooker. The oil inside a pressure fryer gets really dangerously hot, under pressure, and therefore prone to explosion. I can't imagine being the first person who dared to try cooking something in a deep fryer with a gasket sealed shut and a door locked on top. Water inside the food converts to steam, which takes up far more space than liquid water, and thus the atmospheric pressure inside the fryer rises to about double your normal sea level atmospheric pressure, and that raises the boiling point of water from 212 Fahrenheit 100 C up to about 250 Fahrenheit, which would be like 120 C. So under Two atmospheres of pressure, water has to get substantially hotter before it can convert to steam and push out of the food. The effect is that the chicken gets up to serving temperature without losing as much water, because now the water inside the meat can get quite a bit hotter before it starts to evaporate, which is not the only mechanism that dries out meat as it cooks, but it's one of the mechanisms. And it's irrelevant to the core of the meat, which you would never want to cook nearly as hot as the boiling point, like 165 is as hot as you go, Fahrenheit. This raised boiling point effect is probably more meaningful in the outer layers of the chicken, which get much hotter. And for whatever reason, it seems to make a difference that you can feel texturally, especially in the white meat. Actually, I suppose Chick-fil-A only sells boneless white meat chicken products. Soft and juicy dark meat chicken is easy. Anybody can make that. But KFC and Popeyes and Chick-fil-A are able to give you soft and juicy white meat fried chicken by cooking it in a pressure fryer, a piece of equipment so terrifying in concept and yet so apparently safe in practice that it just makes no sense to me. It's not just the pressure fryer, of course. Chick-fil-A chicken also tastes uh, brined to me, though the company does not disclose Truett Cathy's secret recipe, and they have explicitly denied any request to either confirm or deny the urban legend that Chick-fil-A chicken is brined in pickle juice. Personally, I doubt that it's brined in actual pickle juice, but it might be brined in something resembling pickle juice, that is, a brine that is not just salty, but also acidic, aka a marinade. The white meat fibrils of Chick-fil-A chicken just break apart from each other in a way that indicates acid marination to me, but who knows? The company only divulges that which they legally must divulge, such as the ingredient list. The published ingredients for the original chicken sandwich do not mention pickle juice or vinegar or anything like that, but they do mention seasoning and flavor, 
Flavor is a general term the government lets you use for ingredients that comprise a sufficiently small portion of the overall product. And flavor on an ingredient label could conceivably encompass vinegar or something else acidic. The ingredients also list pickles because the sandwich comes with pickles. And maybe the word pickles in the ingredient list could be considered to also encompass the pickle juice in which they really do marinate the chicken. I don't know. No one outside the company knows and is allowed to live. That last part was a joke, I presume. The most notable flavoring on the Chick-fil-A chicken is, to me, MSG, monosodium glutamate. That's what I taste the most when I bite into the fried seasoning crust of Chick-fil-A chicken. To me, it is the most prominent deployment of MSG in an American fast food item that is not also being marketed as Asian food. Chick-fil-A is definitely not an Asian-themed restaurant, and yet the concentrated umami of MSG, an originally Japanese ingredient, is the dominant flavoring of fried Chick-fil-A chicken. And you know, they use MSG because MSG works. According to the official ingredient list, the batter coating on the chicken is enriched malted barley flour, Sugar, salt, monosodium glutamate, nonfat milk, I would guess powdered milk, which enhances flavor and browning, baking powder, spice, oil, paprika for color, that's the flour dredge. First, the chicken goes in the egg wash, which is water whole powdered egg and nonfat milk solids. And before the chicken goes in the egg wash, a Chick-fil-A secret is to run their thumbs up the seam on the underside of the chicken breast. The company has demonstrated this on camera. I'm not divulging any trade secrets here. They take the whole breast, which is of course a half breast. The whole breast is literally all of the chest musculature of a single chicken. When you cut that off the bones, you get a bilaterally symmetrical ribbon of white meat. You normally cut that ribbon in half down along where the breastbone was, and there you get two halves of the breast, each of which we usually refer to as a whole breast, even though it's actually half of the breast. I never know what to say at the meat counter. Anyway, the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich is not made of reconstituted ground chicken parts like so many other fast food chicken sandwiches are. Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwich is made with a whole chicken breast, which is, of course, a half breast. But anyway, they take the breast and they turn it upside down so that they're looking at the rough side that had previously been uh, you know, up against the rib cage. And they run their thumb up the middle of the rough side to break through the weak connective tissue holding the chicken tenderloin in place. I put chicken tenderloin in air quotes, because that's really just a neat poultry industry marketing term to describe the 
pectoralis minor muscle, which is a completely different muscle from the psoas major muscle on cows and pigs and such that we call the tenderloin. The pectoralis minor on a bird is a completely different muscle. They just call it the tenderloin because it's a long, thin, relatively small muscle that runs parallel underneath a much larger muscle, the pectoralis major, the main part of the breast. The pectoralis minor sits under there in the same way that the psoas major, the beef tenderloin muscle sits underneath like the rib section of the beef. Beef tenderloin is traditionally considered the most precious, most desirable cut of beef because it is so little used by the animal and it is therefore extremely tender. In contrast, there's nothing particularly desirable about the pectoralis minor muscle on a chicken, which they call a tenderloin because it kind of looks like a tenderloin, but it isn't. It has the same exact texture as the main part of the breast, save for a rubber band of connective tissue that runs down the so-called tenderloin, a neat little marketing term to make something sound far more desirable than it actually is. I remember watching early Food Network and I saw Rachel Ray do a show where she was cooking chicken tenderloins and she said, it's called the chicken tenderloin because it's the tenderest part of the chicken. And I was like, lies, madam. You preach industry propaganda from the pulpit, madam. And I was a really self-righteous 17-year-old. I would not have wanted to know me. Anyway, at Chick-fil-A, they use their thumb to split open the connective tissue, keeping the pectoralis minor muscle folded back behind the pectoralis major. Once you can fan the minor muscle out, you get a piece of meat of more uniform thickness that will cook more evenly. Plus, it's now wide enough to mostly cover the bottom of a standard hamburger bun. That is the filet in the Chick-fil-A, spelled F-I-L hyphen capital A, so as to indicate that the chicken is of like A-grade quality. This was S. Truett Cathy's thinking, according to corporate lore. They dip that chicken in the milky egg wash, then they put it into the dredging flour that's filled with sugar and MSG, and another key step is the employee is supposed to lean into the chicken with all their body weight to push the flour mixture into the meat. This they drop into very hot peanut oil, smooth side up. Because if the rough side of the breast is facing up, it will tend to retain pools of oil when you lift the chicken back up out of the fryer. Said fryer is a pressure fryer, of course, that they seal off and then they set a timer. And this is done in small batches of just a few chicken breasts at a time over and over again every day at every individual Chick-fil-A location. They do not fry the chicken at a central commissary and then crisp it up in a convection oven at the store, as I would have presumed. They fry the chicken in store, not quite to order, but 
almost to order. Like they pull out a few fried breasts at a time, transfer them to a draining basket, and then they set another timer and they will only sell those pieces of chicken within a certain time span of being fried. Any pieces they don't sell while still crispy, they save for the Chick-fil-A soups. When a customer orders an original Chick-fil-A sandwich, the cooks toast a bun that they uh, butter on the cut sides with a butter-flavored vegetable oil spread. (laughs) But next comes the best part. Upon the bottom bun, they lay two large or three smaller dill-style pickle chips. The pickles make the sandwich, but they must only be layered on at the last second, lest they render the toasted bun or the crispy chicken no longer crisp. It goes bottom bun, fake butter spread, pickles, fried chicken breast, fake butter, top bun. And then it goes into the essential aluminum foil coated pouch bag that keeps the sandwich incredibly hot. I love that that's the sandwich. Chicken, pickles, and bread. There's no gooey mayonnaise-based special sauce. There's no ketchup, no mustard, no onions, no lettuce, no tomato, no cheese, just chicken, pickles, and bread. And it is so good. Anybody who wants to pretend like the original Chick-fil-A sandwich isn't really good, they're just a fundamentally dishonest person. I don't really mean that. I'm using hyperbole to make a point. To me... The Chick-fil-A number one sandwich is as iconic of a fast food item as the original McDonald's hamburger. You know, the little flat one with the pickles and the ketchup and the mustard and the little freeze-dried onion bits. To me, the Chick-fil-A number one is as iconic as that, or as the Burger King Whopper or the Arby's original roast beef sandwich, all of which are Hall of Famers in my book. I love good, classic fast food, sincerely. There's no ironic detachment over here, no shame. Great fast food is great food. And the Chick-fil-A number one sandwich with pickles is legitimately great. I am not surprised that S. Truett Cathy was able to build a massive regional restaurant chain out of that sandwich, radiating outward from Atlanta and through and into the whole American South with different Chick-fil-A locations. One of many very smart things that Chick-fil-A management did was they kept the menu very tight, very focused, very simple. Chick-fil-A makes whole white meat boneless fried chicken products with associated condiments, breads, and sides. That's what they do. They don't also try to offer tacos or pizza or burgers or whatever. It's a very clear, tight menu that is relatively easy for the restaurant to execute during rush periods when the line of cars at the drive-thru is backed up into the road for blocks, as is often the case during a lunch rush at a Chick-fil-A. The rest of us can only hope to run our business concerns so successfully. After all, this year has been brutal for most people's investments, but not everyone. 
not for Masterworks, sponsor of this episode. Check them out at masterworks.art slash Ragusia. Masterworks paid out over $25.8 million last year because they let you invest in multi-million dollar works of art from legendary artists like Picasso and Banksy. Real, coveted contemporary art like that has historically been a remarkably stable investment, the price of which is independent of stocks and bonds. That's why, even as stocks had their worst year since the 2008 crisis, art prices rose an average of 29%, according to Barron's, handily outpacing stocks. Masterworks' team of analysts use data from millions of auction records to source and buy pieces with the greatest potential appreciation. Then they divide the paintings into shares with the Securities and Exchange Commission so that you can invest without needing the millions of dollars necessary to buy a single one of these paintings all by yourself. You buy a share in the artwork. And when it comes to selling the paintings and getting you a profit, Masterworks has quite a track record. 12 exits in total, with five of those occurring just since Masterworks started supporting the podcast. They even had a sale just since my last episode for a realized profit of 15.4% after just a month of holding the piece. So consider, with that 15% net return from Masterworks, if you'd put in $15,000, you'd walk away with nearly $3,000 in profit. Obviously, nothing is guaranteed, especially not in investing, but check out Masterworks and see if they can help you diversify your portfolio. Their offerings tend to sell out in hours, not days, but my link will get you special access to skip their waitlist. Masterworks.art slash Ragusia. That's masterworks.art slash Ragusia. Thank you, Masterworks. Anyway, Chick-fil-A, not a sponsor of this episode, just a company about which I have mixed feelings, but I admire it on several levels. Chick-fil-A is so wildly successful that they must grapple with those good problems to have, like the city getting mad at you because your customers are obstructing traffic as they line up around the block to get another of your deniable only by snobs, boneless white meat fried chicken products. Dealing with that anger from the neighbors is what led Chick-fil-A to experiment with more radically different drive-through models, models that work so much better and move so much more traffic so much faster than any normal two-window fast food drive-through lane like you would see at McDonald's or a Wendy's. And then the pandemic happened and all indoor dining rooms closed. They shifted to being 100% drive-through businesses and they really upped their game at that point. Now, when you go to a good Chick-fil-A location, they will have totally different staffing and physical configurations for the drive-through lanes, depending on whether they're in a rush period, or depending on which rush period they're in, etc. You may pull into a Chick-fil-A and choose from one of two or three very clearly delineated lanes, and in each lane, there will be at least one roving order taker on foot. You don't talk to an intercom speaker. You roll down your window and you give your name and order directly to a pleasant face. 
they enter it into their little mobile ordering tablets and either you hand them your credit card or during busier periods, they'll have you keep on driving down to a second person on foot who takes your card. And then maybe they tell you which car to follow as the two lanes merge together. They'll say, hey, you follow that uh, blue Subaru on the right. My pleasure, because... Their whole thing is they say my pleasure instead of you're welcome, and they tell you which car to follow as the lanes merge so that the orders don't get out of order and everybody gets the food that's actually intended for them. It's a genius system. During slower periods, you might just drive up to the window and they hand you the food like normal, or during busy periods, they might open up their drive through window. The newer Chick-fil-A restaurants all have this. The drive through window converts into a door that they can prop open, and then cars don't have to pull up so close to the building so that drivers can like reach out and grab their food through the window. You put out cones and you have the customers drive in a lane that's like 10 feet away from the building face and you can just walk straight out of the door hand them their food send them on their way and the traffic moves much faster as a result i also imagine it's safer you know you get fewer fender benders with people not driving straight up to the building and the employee doesn't have to reach as far over like the drive through window and into the customer's car window it's a much more comfortable repetitive maneuver to just walk up to a car and drop food through the window you can even manage to deliver food to two separate lanes of cars when you do it that way. And Chick-fil-A does it that way at peak times in busy locations. And most of their locations are busy. Compare that to the normal two-window model when you get in a lane at the McDonald's or whatever and you drive up to the menu and the ordering station and over the intercom, you hear a weird recording that asks... Welcome to McDonald's. Would you like to try our McRib sandwich or whatever today? Please order when you're ready. And you're not sure whether you should take that recording at its word because it might just be automatically triggered by you as you drive up to the menu and it plays whether or not there's actually someone on the other side of the radio to take your order. So instead of proceeding with your order as instructed, you say, hello or something and Maybe somebody answers, maybe somebody doesn't, maybe somebody says, oh, one moment, please. And then they get back to you several minutes later, they take your order over the radio, and you're not sure if they're hearing you right or if you're hearing them right. Then you pull up to the first window where you pay, usually to the person who took your order over the radio. Then you pull up to the second window where you get your food. And half of the time it's the wrong thing, or half the time you end up waiting forever because somebody ahead of you ordered an apple pie and they don't have any apple pies ready right now. So the whole line has to wait until that one guy's apple pie is up to serving temperature. Of course, Chick-fil-A's model where lots of employees fan out on foot to serve drivers across multiple lanes. This is special to Chick-fil-A in, in part because of geography, right? Chick-fil-A is based in Atlanta. Atlanta is hot. It has winter, but winter is short and mild. You can reasonably ask low-wage employees to work outside in the drive through lanes most days of the year around here. In northern states, this model becomes untenable for three to five months out of the year. 
You almost never need to worry when you see a long line at a Chick-fil-A. Just get in it. Unless it's an uncommonly poorly run location, or unless some terrible bit of bad luck strikes, that long line is almost guaranteed to move along very quickly. Some people are no doubt thinking, man, did Adam get bribed by the Chick-fil-A people? Like, what's up with this pro-corporate propaganda? And in my view, that attitude comes from a very lazy cynicism. I will now unironically quote then-Republican U.S. presidential candidate Mitt Romney when I say, corporations are people too. And to automatically dismiss the accomplishments of corporations is to deny credit to the individual human beings who came up with brilliant ideas and implemented those ideas effectively across a massive geographically dispersed company. When a restaurant chain does good things, it's because lots of individual humans like you and me did their jobs really well. And it is not corporatist propaganda to simply give credit where it's due. The efficiency of Chick-fil-A service is matched only by its pleasantness. Chick-fil-A employees tend to be really memorably pleasant, almost creepily pleasant. Sometimes it crosses the line into creepy with me, that combination of pleasantness and enthusiasm, big Broadway jazz hands energy. Employees undergo rigorous training with lots of videos they have to watch and tests they have to take and such to teach them exactly how a Chick-fil-A employee is expected to behave. There's a big emphasis on smiling, even when you're only talking to a customer through an intercom. Employees are expected to smile through the telephone line, as it were, because you can hear when someone is smiling or not. If you go on like job board websites and other places where people who claim to be employees or former employees can post anonymously about their workplace. If you go on those boards online and you read some employee reviews of Chick-fil-A, most people are pretty positive about their experience. Some of them are extremely positive about their experience, suspiciously positive or creepily positive. But even lots of the positive reviews join with the negative reviews in criticizing the relentless pressure from store management to always be positive, always smile, always feel lucky and happy to work at Chick-fil-A where pay and benefits are consistently somewhat better than at comparable workplaces. The vibe you get from reading those anonymous employee reviews is that a well-run Chick-fil-A is a pretty positive, uplifting workplace. But everyone there is also under a lot of pressure to act as though it is such a workplace. So you can never be totally sure how much of the positivity is sincere and how much of it is somebody putting on a happy face and a tidy, freshly washed and pressed employee uniform as 
the appearance of employees is closely regulated at Chick-fil-A. That depiction of the Chick-fil-A workplace vibe definitely tracks my experience of going to many different Chick-fil-A's across many different neighborhoods around the South. I've been a regular customer at a Chick-fil-A in a rich white neighborhood where half the employees are well-groomed teenagers. I've been a regular customer at a Chick-fil-A in a less rich black neighborhood where all the front of house employees were super friendly, older black ladies. I've been to Chick-fil-A's in more rural locations, in urban locations, though most of the locations are in suburbs. Almost every Chick-fil-A I've seen has been really well run and that at least partially sincere, but still a little aggressive positivity is exhibited by most employees, even across lots of very different types of people working in those jobs. Part of the secret to this consistency is the peculiar franchise model of Chick-fil-A. If you want to open a McDonald's franchise, for example, or any of the other big fast food chains, you have to pony up hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars, though most likely you'll get like a business loan for that from a bank or some other lending institution. You get together hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars so that you can build and own your McDonald's restaurant. Franchisees are owners, full owners or partial owners. Some chains retain like a part corporate ownership stake in all franchise locations, and most chains have locations that they own and operate directly, but they also franchise out the rights to run a McDonald's or whatever it is to individual independent business owners who pay franchise fees in exchange for the technology and the materials and the ingredients and the recipes and the marketing to promote the chain and all of that. The second cheapest big national fast food chain to franchise is Subway. It is famously inexpensive to start your own Subway sandwich shop. I would guess because there's so little equipment and space involved, you're just assembling sandwiches. You don't need a deep fryer and a flat top griddle and a grease trap and oil deliveries and used oil pickups and all of that. Subway is a very simple restaurant. And so the total startup costs borne by the franchisee can be as little as $150,000 or thereabouts. It is practically feasible for lots of people to get a business loan to cover that. And this has helped lead to Subway's absolutely massive growth. Like Subway is second in number of locations only to McDonald's. The biggest food and beverage chains are McDonald's, Subway, and number three is Starbucks. And no one else comes even close to those three in number of locations. There are a million subways because it's cheap to open a subway and franchisees take on most of the financial risk because they're the ones taking out the loans for the startup costs. So subway corporate is happy to grow and grow at little risk to themselves. And unfortunately, this may have led some people to own a subway, even though they really aren't financially ready to be a good employer. 
I'm just speaking from anecdotes, not data, but I think it's fair to say that Subway does not have a particularly good reputation as a place to work, while Chick-fil-A does have a particularly good reputation as a place to work, as fast food places go. And part of that may be Chick-fil-A's unusual franchise model. It costs you as little as $10,000 to open your own Chick-fil-A franchise. Ten grand is all you need to upfront yourself. This is because Chick-fil-A actually retains ownership of all stores. Chick-fil-A puts up almost all of the money to build and operate the locations, and the company owns it. The franchisee is really just an operator who buys a little bit of an ownership stake in that particular location, either literal ownership or symbolic ownership enacted through performance bonuses to salary. I have no idea how it works, but franchisees have just a minor ownership stake in the location they operate, and they must actually work there themselves and manage it themselves. They are not allowed to operate any other franchise locations or work any other jobs. It's not like other chains where the franchisees themselves are often huge regional corporations in their own right that own and operate dozens of Wendy's locations or whatever it is. There's none of that on planet Chick-fil-A. Franchisees must personally manage their one and only location. And Chick-fil-A says they are extremely choosy in considering franchise applications. Reportedly, the success rate of an application to Harvard University is higher than the success rate of applications to become a Chick-fil-A franchisee. There is an exhaustive series of interviews and essays to write and tests to take and training courses to attend and hopefully pass, etc. On their website for prospective franchisees, Chick-fil-A writes, quote, This is not the right opportunity for you if you are seeking a passive investment in a business. If that's your deal, Chick-fil-A wants nothing to do with you. They don't want to work with absentee landlords. They want owner-operator proprietors with pride and personal and financial stake in the success of their one and only location. This management model really seems to work. At most other fast food locations, you get a sense that most people are kind of embarrassed to work there, and they'd really rather be anywhere else. I mean, who wouldn't, but they really need the money, and this is the only legitimate economic opportunity available to them at this time. At Chick-fil-A, the vibe is usually totally different. Absolutely, there are bad Chick-fil-A operators out there. Go on those anonymous job boards and you will read lots of horror stories about bad bosses at Chick-fil-A that may or may not be true stories, but they sound credible to me. Call it pro-corporate propaganda on my part, but I think it's good to give credit where it's due, because corporations are people too, and when people do their jobs really well, they should be praised. Lots of people at Chick-fil-A have been doing their jobs really well for a long time, and Chick-fil-A's pace of sustained 
nearly nationwide growth has been rivaled in recent years, I think only by Chipotle among the really big chains, and their per-store sales tend to be way higher than other chains, and their customer satisfaction ratings tend to be way higher. Chick-fil-A is so well-run, and everybody there so enthusiastic and happy that it can almost have cultish vibes, an impression that is aggravated, shall we say, by the overt evangelical Christianity of devout Southern Baptist S. Truett Cathy and his sons, who gradually took over the business from their father in advance of Cathy's death in 2014. Cathy's sons now run the company. Their father was an unabashed evangelical, as were most Southern people of his generation, and the leaders of large Southern institutions were expected to be evangelical paragons of public virtue and to write books with titles like It's Better to Build Boys Than Mend Men, which S. Truett Cathy did, among other motivational pop spiritualist titles that he authored. He continued to teach Sunday school at Second Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Georgia, for most of his very long adult life, and he operated his business in accordance with his Christian principles, which included observing the Sabbath company-wide. No Chick-fil-A locations are open regularly on Sundays. They all shut down for the entirety of the Sabbath, which is completely completely unheard of for a national chain these days. Some of them may be open later on Sundays, but you are leaving so much money on the table by being fully closed all of Sunday. If you're watching this podcast on home video, I swear that my wearing of a Black Sabbath t-shirt today is totally coincidental, though I am much more of a Black Sabbath fan than I am a Chick-fil-A fan, that's for sure. Here's my favorite anecdote about Chick-fil-A's stubborn Sunday Sabbatarianism. They opened a Chick-fil-A inside the gleaming new Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, where the Atlanta Falcons play. There's two things to know for you to understand why that's funny. The first thing is that most American stadiums are absolutely gigantic complexes built some distance away from walkable city centers. They're surrounded by a moat of surface parking lots, and nobody gets remotely close to a major American stadium unless they are attending an event there, like a concert or a game. The other thing you have to know to understand why this is funny is that the Falcons are an American football team, and professional American football is most often played on Sundays. Chick-fil-A built a restaurant in a football stadium, even though Chick-fil-A is always closed on Sundays. Therefore, they are closed on the day when people are by far most likely to actually be at the stadium. That is company-wide commitment to Sunday Sabbatarianism. S. Truett Cathy 
set that company policy in accordance with his religious beliefs and the societal expectations placed upon a Southern business leader of his generation to be a moral leader in the evangelical Christian tradition in which he was raised, the way most other people in the American South were raised at the time. To Kathy, his obligation to be a moral leader involved paying his people a little better than other fast food restaurants do, and trying to be kinder to employees and developing them to their full potential and giving them advancement opportunities and all that. But Kathy's sense of obligation to be a moral leader also involved giving lots of corporate donations to organizations advancing traditional conservative family values. Organizations like the Family Research Council, a fundamentalist organization founded by the televangelist James Dobson, like so many similar organizations founded as part of a counter-revolution in America, a, a conservative response to the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, where broader social attitudes about sex outside of marriage relaxed quite a bit, where feminism rose and achieved remarkable feats of emancipation for women, where divorce laws were liberalized, where birth control and abortion laws were liberalized, at least for a time. The Family Research Council was one of many such conservative Christian advocacy organizations that sprung up in response to the liberalization of social norms really across the developed world in the 1960s and 70s. Chick-fil-A gave lots of money to the Windshape Foundation, which was started by Truett Cathy and his wife. And the, that foundation, in turn, gave money to organizations like the Family Research Council that advocated against, among other things, same-sex marriage and the homosexual lifestyle or the homosexual agenda, as they would have put it. Indeed, lobbying against the expansion of legal rights for people in committed same-sex relationships is arguably the main thing that the Family Research Council does, or the most prominent thing they have historically done among advancing other big conservative causes, to the point where in 2010... The Southern Poverty Law Center took the then remarkable and very newsworthy step of listing the Family Research Council as a hate group, not because of their fundamentalist biblical beliefs about the definition of marriage, but because the Family Research Council issued publications claiming that same-sex couples are measurably worse parents and gay people are far more likely to be sexual predators, and the true homosexual agenda is to legalize all sexual conduct, including pedophilia. The Southern Poverty Law Center, a non-governmental nonprofit that has tracked hate groups for many decades, the SPLC listed the Family Research Council as a hate group because the Family Research Council repeatedly made these extremely inflammatory dangerous claims about sexual and gender minorities that contradict the balance of scientific evidence and scientific opinion on the subjects. These are not religious beliefs, but rather malicious lies. 
And this all happened around 2010, when the debate over same-sex marriage was really heating up in the United States. First, the liberal northeastern state of Massachusetts legalized same-sex marriage in 2004, and gradually other states passed laws and ballot initiatives or they had court decisions. And by 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court made same-sex marriage legally available nationwide in the U.S. This new and in my view, fully justified scrutiny on the Family Research Council and its funders, this occurred right in the midst of this massive societal and legal shift in favor of same-sex marriage in the U.S. It also happened right at the time of succession within the Kathy family. Truett Kathy, the patriarch, the founder, was getting real old, and his sons were gradually taking a bigger and bigger role in running the company. And by 2013, Dan Cathy, the oldest son, was chairman and CEO of Chick-fil-A. Armchair psychoanalysis is a dangerous thing, especially in the hands of someone like me with no training in psychology, apart from it being the family business. My father and brother and mother all either are or have been mental health care practitioners. It's not good to try to read someone's soul from how they talk on TV, but I'm going to do it anyway right now because I think I've done a pretty good job of establishing the Adam Ragusea family of programs as being infotainment. You don't expect like the highest level of rigor around here. You know that I'm ultimately just a man in his kitchen with a camera, no special credentials. I'm just a nerd who eats and reads a lot. I am perhaps particularly good at reading the internet and scrutinizing and synthesizing the claims published therein. And I am perhaps particularly good at talking into a microphone about what I've learned, but that's it. There's an implied informality of thought around here. When we have totally unjustified, but still interesting or otherwise amusing thoughts around here, we share those thoughts around here with proper context that it's all just a silly guess. Here's my silly guess about Dan Cathy, the second CEO and chairman of Chick-fil-A after his father, the founder. The vibe I get from Dan Cathy is similar to the vibe I get from Jerry Falwell Jr. It's a similar vibe I get from Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. It's a vibe I get from a lot of the sons of great men who inherit a great legacy, and they are determined to put their own mark on that legacy and to emerge from under their father's shadows, to be more than their fathers in some way, more zealous, more progressive, more conservative, more cutthroat, more compassionate. Whatever the case may be, they want to be more something than their fathers. They have an energy that's says there's a new sheriff in town and they really want everybody to know it. That's the vibe I get from Dan Cathy when I read his public comments about same-sex marriage from that period of great controversy over Chick-fil-A's support of anti-same-sex marriage organizations that peaked around 2012. The controversy peaked around then. I mean, I don't I don't know about the donations, but 
Dan Cathy gives me big, I'm more zealous than my daddy vibes in his quotes to media around this time period that we're talking about, such as in this interview with the Biblical Recorder, published in 2012, the reporter asked about the Cathy family's support of the traditional family, and Dan Cathy said, quote, well, guilty as charged. We are very much supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We operate as a family business. Our restaurants are typically led by families. Some are single. We want to do anything we possibly can to strengthen families. We are very much committed to that. We intend to stay the course. We know that it might not be popular with everyone, but thank the Lord, we live in a country where we can share our values and operate on biblical principles, end quote. But that legal right, of course, does not insulate a business from withering public dissent and criticism, which Chick-fil-A knowingly provoked and arguably stoked for a few months there when the Chick-fil-A controversy became national news. And authorities in very liberal jurisdictions, where Chick-fil-A would probably never try to establish a presence anyway, made public statements saying, oh, Chick-fil-A better think twice before they try to open a store in my city. Dan Cathy seemed to almost enjoy the controversy for about five minutes, and then perhaps his heart was persuaded of the error of his ways, or perhaps business just really started to tank at Chick-fil-A locations in relatively liberal communities, or perhaps there was a lot of internal dissent within Chick-fil-A, a company that hires no shortage of gay or Otherwise, outwardly gender nonconforming people within its own ranks. Lots of gay people work at Chick-fil-A. And one way or another, Dan Cathy and his brothers were really chastened by the public controversy, or at least they made an effort to appear chastened. And Chick-fil-A took steps to eliminate its funding of any entity engaged in politically controversial work. I am not privy to the internal corporate dialogue on this topic at Chick-fil-A. I only know how things look from the outside and how it looks from the outside is they had to play things very cool and carefully during the feverish peak of this public relations crisis for the company around 2012, because on the one hand, they wanted to appease all of the people who objected to Chick-fil-A's support of organizations that spread malicious and dangerous lies about sexual and gender minorities. And that is me, Adam Ragusea, calling those malicious, dangerous lies, by the way, because I believe that's what they are. Chick-fil-A leadership supported orgs that spread dangerous lies, and they supported orgs that advocated conversion therapy to pray away the gay and other stuff that I find morally reprehensible. Chick-fil-A wanted to appease people like me who were angry about that stuff, but they also didn't want to piss off the possibly larger portion of their clientele who 100% supported the evangelical motives and methods of the Kathy family. Then Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee 
father of the current Arkansas governor. Mike Huckabee launched a Chick-fil-A Appreciation Day movement and made it a cause celeb across his many appearances in national conservative media. This counter boycott or reverse boycott was correlated with a big spike in sales at Chick-fil-A stores and Chick-fil-A corporate did not want to alienate all of those people either. So between a rock and a hard place, they withdrew their support for these controversial organizations kind of gradually and quietly, and they avoided making direct public statements for a while, but rather they kind of laundered quotes through people like Huckabee, who claimed to have an inside line to Chick-fil-A, and Huckabee told his audience that Chick-fil-A is holding the line against the libs. All while reporters dug into public records, you know, public reports that all nonprofits in the U.S. have to file. And these reporters published stories about how Chick-fil-A appeared to stop giving money to the Family Research Council and similar outfits. Chick-fil-A has since advised all franchisees to avoid speaking out on anything politically controversial. In 2014... Dan Cathy told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he regretted getting everybody into that PR mess. And Chick-fil-A's corporate messaging about diversity and inclusion is now indistinguishable from corresponding pro-diversity and inclusion rhetoric spouted by other large corporations these days. A few reporters have turned up records of more recent donations to organizations with arguably anti-LGBTQ rights stances, but those could easily have been oversights or cases that are just kind of more morally ambiguous or debatable than the whole Family Research Council thing. In general, what seems to have happened here is that a big public-facing corporation took an active public stance on a matter of public controversy. Lots of people told Chick-fil-A they disapproved of that stance, and the company relented. They heard the message or they caved to the pressure, whichever way you want to look at it. A few years ago, they were found to still be giving money to the Salvation Army, a Christian charity that has historically done a lot of really great anti-poverty work in the United States, but it also harbors some pretty unfortunate regressive social views, in my opinion, and in many other people's opinions. And when the controversy reemerged, Chick-fil-A announced they would cease donations to the Salvation Army and to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. By all outward indications, Chick-fil-A seems to have gotten the message and taken corrective action to address the concerns of people like me. And yet, the boycott Chick-fil-A movement persists, particularly among people who don't actually have the option of going to Chick-fil-A. It's easy to boycott something that has nothing to do with you. In 2019, Chick-fil-A opened its first location in the UK, in the uh, Oracle Indoor Mall in Reading, and there was huge public backlash, mostly over LGBTQ rights. And literally days after the restaurant opened, the mall announced that they would not be renewing Chick-fil-A's lease. And even though Lauren and I get breakfast at Chick-fil-A with some regularity, I always remember to get the big red and white cups 
out of the background of any of my shots when I'm filming food videos in my kitchen later on that day because I just don't want to hear about it in the comments. And I especially don't want to hear about it from people whom I would regard as outsiders on this issue, people with no personal involvement or stake. It's easy to claim the moral high ground when you're not even walking the same path as me. Almost everybody down here in the South goes to Chick-fil-A. White, black, young, old, gay, straight, rich, poor, just about everybody down here goes to Chick-fil-A, at least sometimes. I appreciate the efficiency of service, though I find the cultish smiley vibe to be a bit oppressive. Then again, I am a miserable bastard, and maybe I should just lighten up Francis. I enjoy a Chick-fil-A number one sandwich as an occasional treat, as a pickle delivery device, but mostly I appreciate that Chick-fil-A offers the healthiest mainstream fast food breakfast item in the country, the egg white grill, which I frequently enjoy pre or post workout. It's a grilled chicken breast with egg white on a whole wheat English muffin, very high protein and probably not as low cal as I like to imagine it is, but still way better than a sausage biscuit or whatever abomination Lauren gets because she has the metabolism of a small bird. And I am cognizant of the fact that if I refuse to buy stuff from every private concern whose founders or whose leaders harbor political views to which I object, then I will probably never be able to buy anything from anywhere. Like, show me any major public-facing company that doesn't have at least one loathsome a-hole on the board. That's what loathsome a-holes do. They run for office, and they get themselves on corporate boards. There's a similar example in the case of the grocery store chain Publix, another large chain focused on the American South. Publix is headquartered in Florida and has spread all through the Southeast. I love Publix. I go to Publix all the time, even though it's neither the nicest grocery store, nor is it the least expensive grocery store. It's just a really solid middle market grocery that is noticeably cleaner and better stocked and better run than other grocery chains. And the employees usually seem happier and kind of proud to work there. Publix is partly employee-owned. It is the largest employee-owned company in the United States. The pay and benefits are still below what I think should be the minimum, but they're better than at other big grocery chains. It's a well-run business performing an essential service where employees and customers are treated uncommonly well. That's the kind of place I want to shop. Publix is also yet another company founded by a typically conservative religious Southern family. And the daughter of Publix founder George Jenkins is now a Republican mega donor. 
Julie Fancelli is her name. She's the main inheritor of public's fortune, and she has, in the past, had formal business roles associated with companies that are associated with publics, but no longer. She doesn't work there in any way, as far as I can tell. She just lives off of public's money while being a total loudmouth conspiracy theorist ding-dong who helped to fund the January 6th Stop the Steal rally that escalated into a riot and then eventually a violent mob taking over the U.S. Capitol building after the... 2020 election that Donald Trump lost. People were saying to boycott Publix, and I got DMs from people disappointed with me for showing Publix products in my videos. And I'm like, dude, if you boycotted every company whose founders' kids are a-holes, then you would never buy anything anywhere. I am not opposed to boycotts. I think there's a lot of times and places for boycotts, but I think you need to have a specific and consistent reasoning for joining a boycott, a reasoning beyond just, you know, oh, well, I saw the boycott X hashtag and I figured I don't really consume X so I can easily virtue signal by joining this boycott and looking upon the people of the American South as being morally inferior, which is something that northerners like myself i am a native northerner we've been treating the south as morally inferior for a long time and not without some reason i mean slavery was mostly a southern thing but it was awfully easy for northerners to associate themselves with the abolition movement when their economies were not directly dependent upon slave labor their economies were just indirectly dependent upon slave labor, with southern states being locked in various triangle trades with the northern states. When southern people say that, oh, the Civil War was about economics, not slavery, some of them are simply parroting a false revisionist narrative thrust upon them in southern schools. But what the more intelligent and informed of such people really mean when they say that is that the North did not rally to war in moral outrage over slavery. The North had less noble, more self-interested motives for going to war. And I think that's true, at least broadly speaking. Certainly, the cause of abolition was the leading progressive cause of its day prior to the Civil War. And there was a fierce religious movement for abolition across New England and in the upper Midwest in particular, and some people absolutely did join the Union Army with anti-slavery fire in their bellies, but I think it's fair to say that moral outrage over slavery was not the primary motivation of the North to fight the South, though conflict over which states and territories would allow slavery was the direct impetus for the war, and the primary lasting effect of the war was the abolition of slavery. Therefore, people who romanticize the Southern cause are romanticizing the fight to preserve slavery. Don't take my word for it. Read the war declarations, the causes belly written and adopted by the legislatures of Southern states, where they came right out and actually said, this is a war to preserve the institution of slavery. Believe them, not me. 
Slavery was bad, but something that's also bad is the long history of Northerners acting morally and intellectually superior to Southerners. And I see the lingering boycott Chick-fil-A movement within that broader historical context. Northerners heckling Southerners from the cheap seats about yet another social issue that minimally involves Northerners. So, of course, they claim the moral high ground because taking it does not require them to actually do anything, does not require them to alter their behavior. I am 100% down with the fight for legal and social inclusion of sexual and gender minorities. But when it comes to Chick-fil-A, we appear to have won that fight. So I say, take the W and stop fighting. If you want to persuade corporations to change their ways, reward them with your business when they do change their ways. And don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I'm sure Chick-fil-A and its local franchisees will continue to do things on the margin that I object to, but in general, they seem to be about as good of a national retail corporation as I can reasonably expect. And I try hard to check my privilege that I grew up being an educated urbane person from a worldly and well-educated and well-traveled family who exposed me to other cultures, and I got the message early on that there is more than one chosen people in this world. There is more than one divinely sanctioned lifestyle. I didn't grow up in a tiny, poor, rural southern town where literally everybody you meet is a Baptist and your only encounters with other kinds of people are through like distorted media representations. People who grew up in or near such a milieu tend to be endowed with fewer tools to process social change or to flourish within a plural society. Frankly, I think it's a privilege that I grew up being given the tools that I used to debunk Christian fundamentalism within my own mind. I went to schools and read books where I learned how religious dogma gets written to satisfy the immediate political or social objectives of the people advancing the dogma. The king wants a divorce and the Pope won't grant him one. So actually, the Pope is not God's anointed representative on earth. All the English bishops suddenly realized one day God had funny timing on that one. I learned how religious texts are often inconsistent and self-conflicting because they were written by lots of totally different authors across totally different centuries. I learned how sensitive religious texts are to subtle, or sometimes not so subtle, mistranslations that radically alter how people interpret religious prescriptions, all because some monk got an ancient Greek word kind of wrong like 400 years ago. I was able to learn the stuff that led me to see religious fundamentalism as the sham that I believe it to be. And that learning was a privilege or an unearned advantage that I had over other people. 
is Christian fundamentalism especially prevalent in the Southern U.S. because Southerners are inherently morally or intellectually inferior? Or could it be because the South is historically more rural, less industrial, and poorer? (laughs) Maybe it's reasonable to expect that people who come up in such a world are going to need a little more time to get hip to social change, as righteous as that change may be in my eyes. I'm not just talking specifically about how we view the Kathy family. I don't know very much about the Kathy family or S. Truett Kathy's upbringing south of Atlanta, but I know what tends to be true about such people from such places. They tend to have been born into a lot of religious conservatism that would take some time for most people to transcend. When I look at Chick-fil-A, I think... You know, y'all were a little late to the party on affirming civil rights for sexual and gender minorities, or at least not actively threatening the civil rights of sexual and gender minorities. Y'all were a little late to that party. But you're here now. And there's lots of other good things about your company, so we're cool. We can do business together. When your one-time enemy comes over to join your tent, you don't hit him on the head and say, what took you so long? Instead, you put your arm around him and you say, welcome, brother. That's what you do if you actually want to win whatever conflict you're fighting. If you just want to prove your moral purity to the people already in your tent, by all means. Turn your one-time enemy away from your tent. Send him off into the wilderness in ignominy, probably to rejoin with your opposition. By all means, do that if you don't care about victory for your cause. You just want to impress the hardliners who are already in your tent. That's my moral logic for why I am fine eating at Chick-fil-A in spite of Chick-fil-A's past support for causes that I would characterize as Christian extremism. Am I fine with eating at Chick-fil-A in spite of their animal welfare record to say nothing of their contributions to endemic metabolic syndrome in the American South? That I'm not so sure of, but I'm very sure I've said enough about Chick-fil-A for one day. If you think I've gotten something really wrong, if, if I've really missed something in my examination of this issue, let me know about it at askadamquestions at gmail.com. The recipe coming up on Thursday is going to be a, a controversial one. Kind of lost my mind for a moment. I put beans in a place where beans have rarely gone before. I'm bringing sexy beans again. Let's just leave it at that. Make good choices. Spend your money in accordance with your values as much as is reasonably possible. I'll talk to you next time. Pew.